Welcome back to this week's episode of The Divine Lantern. I'm Alana from St. Nicholas Punchbowl and a very big thank you for tuning in this week. With the blessing of His Eminence Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower and enrich. In today's episode, we have a message on the Prodigal Son by Father John Moal, a Did You Know segment and a continuation of the Monasteries of Our Patriarchate series with the Monastery of St. Elias, Shweya. First up, we have Father John Moal's talk. The reading is from the Gospel according to the Holy Apostle and Evangelist Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Let us attend. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Sisters and brothers, firstly I pray that you are in health of mind, soul and body. And during these unprecedented and perhaps difficult times, you have found or have been strengthened by the rock of faith, which shall never be shaken. 
Everyone is quite familiar with this great parable of repentance, which the Church sets before us as we lead ourselves in anticipation of the Great Lenten journey. It is very easy to look at this Gospel and make the same mistake yearly, and see the prodigal as a sinner turned repentant, and thank God we have not yet sinned or left as he had. Now more than ever, we see the importance of the Church, not just as the dwelling place of God, or as it's called the earthly heaven, yet as also the gathering of the people chosen by God to live together as He dwells among them and moves among them. How great is the longing to taste the experience of love, as did the disciples, as did those who belonged to the early church and the saints past, finding absolute freedom and peace in the Lord and living and walking that path with the same community of believers. This parable is for us more relevant today than ever before. Relating the story of the prodigal son with the church today, it's a heartbreaking parallel. Many of our youth today in the church, or those in fact that we have not been able to embrace, sometimes have feelings like the prodigal son. Some of them have this same desire to leave the nest, to leave the home, and perhaps feel like they need to leave and let go in order to grow up. Perhaps the son in the parable today felt suffocated. Perhaps he was bothered by the presence of his brother or his father. Perhaps he just wanted to be free or feel free. This reality, brothers and sisters, is not without a cause. Rather than looking at the youth like we look at the prodigal, we rather need to reflect as members of the church and ask ourselves a huge question, why? Why did he go? Why and from where such disrespect for his father and his family? Why the willingness to leave such a comfortable home for a life of debauchery? Why? Did we fail in our approach? Did we fail in providing enough love? Did we fail in providing enough opportunity? There is much to be discussed, yet firstly there is a great need to stop and think about why we lose youth to a life outside of the church, a life of sin and a life of instability. Further, and for me the most painful reality, is in comparing the righteous older son and members of the church today. This older righteous son kept all the rules of the house. He honoured his father, he worked as he should, he did as he said, and outwardly he looked like a righteous person. However, St. John Chrysostom points out something quite interesting. He says, outwardly the elder son was faultless, but when confronted his father's joy at the return of his younger brother, a dark power erupts in him and boils to the surface. Suddenly, he says, there becomes a glaringly visible, a resentful, proud, unkind, selfish person, one that remained deeply hidden. When his brother came home, the Gospel says, the righteous older brother was angry and would not go in to the celebration. Even though his father came out and pleaded, he pleaded with him to come and rejoice in his brother's return. Come and celebrate, he says. Come and experience the greatest miracle and resurrection. 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Yet this submissively, this son responds to his father. He says, this son of yours, not my brother, not the one I grew up with, not the one of whom I have the same blood, not the one I share the same communion with, not the one I stand next to and with open arms pray aloud, our Father who art in heaven, not the one I weekly seek forgiveness from and seek to forgive. All of a sudden he becomes your son. For this elder brother, sisters and brothers, and for many like him, virtue acquires value because of the existence of evil. Allow me to repeat. Virtue acquires value because of the existence of evil. What this simply means is that I feel good when he is bad. I feel proud of myself when he is failing, when he is sinning, when he is despondent and living in filth. In fact, I never ever hope for the repentance of my brother. Yet it does not stop there. As pointed out by St. Cyril, he says the older son proceeded so far in his unloving sentiments as to find fault with his father for his natural affection and joy for his son who was saved. He cannot even see that before him is everything. He has so many blessings to count. He has all the love required. He has shelter, all the inheritance of his father, yet he goes so far and to blames the hand that feeds him and judges him and sentences him to punishment. But what then of this father, the one that we resemble of God and the church? See, brothers and sisters, how we behold such a kind God, a God who, like the father, gave his son all he had. And when he took all he had and wasted on a life of sin and emptiness, yet upon his return his father was even more kind to him, offering not only what he was entitled to with inheritance, but even gave him his own clothing, his own riches, and all the best food. The church, the house and dwelling place of God, is where the two extremes of images meet and are fused together in the forgiveness of love. It is in the love of the Father for his sons, in the love of the church for her children, that all is resolved. Like the prodigal when he came to himself, he remembered his father's house. It is in this remembrance where we are reminded of the image of the church, the place of openness, of love, of forgiveness, of charity, of rejoicing and togetherness that we are drawn to in this parable. The forgetfulness, as the saints say, of God's mighty works is the greatest of sins. To forget that God forgives me, to forget that he showers me with his gifts, to forget that he keeps the door open for me and runs out to meet me, even though at times I run the other way or am so far away from him, is the reminder of this gospel and parable, sisters and brothers. All this is in the house of the Father, the church, yesterday, today and forever. The greatest fear and burden for the church today, sisters and brothers, for me, is losing one of the least of these or not being able to welcome a soul home because of our failure, because of our deficits, or even worse, because of our condemnation of the other. Imagine for a moment, as profoundly Father Hopko of blessed memory said, the prodigal son never came home. Imagine he thought to himself, people will judge me. 
or they will reject me, or there is no hope for me as I'm already dead. Imagine Father Hopko says, the generations that we are responsible for, hearing the stories about the Father's house, but they grow up not knowing it. In concluding, brothers and sisters, with the words of St. Gregory of Palamas, he says, A person suffering from spiritual famine, being deprived of and desiring spiritual nourishment, goes around searching for someone with God's gift of teaching. Me, you, the church servers, the chanters, the members of the various councils, pew sitters, and every person of the church, those chosen by God, now more than ever, sisters and brothers, need to remember or be reminded of our Father's house, with open arms, with an outpouring of love, reaching out to those inside, outside, and far away, fusing all things in the forgiveness of love, bringing all the extremes into the unity of the church, under the shelter of our Heavenly Father, in the place that we call home, the church. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Thank you, Father John, for that beautiful message. And now a series of readings from the Philokalia. Take your weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our Holy Naptic Fathers with this week's Philokalic Nourishment. Through His Incarnation, God gave us the model for a holy life and recalled us from our ancient fall, in addition to many other things. He taught us, feeble as we are, that we should fight against the demons with humility, fasting, prayer and watchfulness. For when after his baptism, he went into the desert and the devil came up to him as though he were merely a man. He began his spiritual warfare by fasting and won the battle by this means. Though being God and God of gods, he had no need of any such means at all. St. Hesychios, the priest. According to how you treat the soul while it is in the body, so will it treat you when it leaves the body. He who has treated his body he softly and indulgently has treated himself ill after death. For, like a fool, he has condemned his soul. St. Anthony the Great. The person who hates evil commits it, but seldom, and then not intentionally. But the person attached to the causes of evil commits it frequently and deliberately. Elias the Presbyter On February 20 in the Holy Orthodox Church, we commemorate the Venerable Basil the Confessor Companion of Procopius of Docopolis, Haremata Protirios, Archbishop of Alexandria, Righteous Kira and Marana of Beroa in Syria, Apostles Nymphus and Euvalos, and New Mata Kirana of Thessalonica. On this day, we make remembrance of the parable of the prodigal son, which occurs in the Noble Gospel, and which our deified fathers reinstituted in the Triodion. O thou who art like me a prodigal, Come forward with confidence and tranquillity, 
for unto all has been opened the door of divine mercy. In the parable, our Saviour Jesus illustrates three things, the condition of the sinner, the canon of repentance, and the knowledge of God's compassion. For in the person of the prodigal son, we view the wretched condition that sin creates for us, distant from God and his sacraments. However, we become aware of ourselves and awaken, hastening with hope to return to him through repentance. Our Saviour wants to call back to his mansions all those who have been overtaken by despair, lacking hope of forgiveness for their grave sins. The Father encourages all of his lost children to remove the desperation from their hearts and revive their energies for virtuous deeds. Through thine ineffable love for mankind, O Christ our God, have mercy upon us. Amen. Did you know that there are more than seven sacraments? Stay tuned for more on this after the break. When I The sacraments form an essential part of the spiritual life of an Orthodox Christian. Sacraments can be understood as an event where we perceive God's presence and action. The word sacrament is derived from the Latin word sacramentum, meaning a consecrated thing or act, that is, something holy. The sacraments serve to disclose and reveal God to us and to allow the Holy Spirit to actively work in our lives ultimately leading to our deification, or theosis. Since the sacraments are instances where we, as finite human beings, participate in God's infinite and incomprehensible divine grace, we may also refer to them as mysteries. We often refer to seven specific sacraments, baptism, chrismation, the Holy Eucharist, confession, marriage, the priesthood, and anointing of the sick. Although these seven sacraments represent some of the most important rites of the Church, the more ancient and traditional practice of the Orthodox Church is to not isolate these seven from the broader life of the Church. For example, the funeral service and the blessing of the waters at Epiphany may also be considered sacramental. We may even go so far as to say that through the work of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, 
Everything we do in the church, such as prayer and serving others, participates in the life of Christ and is a sacramental experience of the mystery of his kingdom. The sacraments or holy mysteries involve both visible and invisible elements, physical creation and the work of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. St. John Chrysostom says that we see one thing and we believe another. For example, at the mystical supper or the Eucharist, we offer the visible bread and wine and the Holy Spirit invisibly transforms these into the body and blood of Christ. During chrismation, a child is anointed physically with the holy chrism oil and invisibly receives the Holy Spirit. Through the use of material things, nature participates in the divine work of God and the salvation of man. The sacraments are essential in the life of the church. Let us approach the holy mysteries with due reverence, acknowledging that they are not simply mechanical rituals, but a necessary means for us to participate in the saving power of Christ's cross and resurrection. The following segment, Monasteries of Our Patriarchate, will take you on a journey through the profound Orthodox monasteries specific to Antioch and all the East. We hope you gain greater insight and appreciation into the geography, history, contributions, miraculous recounts and spiritual guidance these revered sites and their inhabitants provide for the nourishment of the wider Orthodox community. St. Elias Monastery, Shweya. Situated on a sandstone cliff 30 kilometers from Beirut, St. Elias Monastery in Shweya rises at 1,150 meters above sea level, towering over both resort towns and mountainside villages. Pine forests embrace the environs of the monastery and one can encounter a diverse variety of trees and vegetation, including oak, fruit, willow, maple, and even eucalyptus trees. The monastery stones are sculpted from the cliffs and it appears as though it is joined with the surrounding rock formations. The origin of St. Elias Monastery in Shweya is unknown. The oldest document at the monastery, a land purchase deed, is dated between 1595 to 1596, whereas another source indicates that the monastery was built in 1612 on the land of the priest Butros Alklink. However, the architectural design of the monastic basement consisting of six cells and two larger rooms hewn from the cliff resembles Christian styles of 5th and 6th centuries and the 12th and 13th centuries. This indicates that the monastery was abandoned for a long time before being re-established during the Ottoman period. In 1760, the monastery was rebuilt after being damaged from an earthquake by Yunus Nicholas el Jubeli, a prominent Beiruti citizen and the superior Sophronios al Segali. The monastery then prospered throughout the latter 18th century and the 19th century. St. Elias Shweya became an important centre for silk production. In 1845, Mount Lebanon was partitioned into Christian and Druze areas, and the good relations between the superior and the Emir Hayak at that time allowed the monastery to remain prospering. In fact, in 1841, more cells were added to the monastery's building, suggesting its economic growth. 
Later that century, the monastery established a school. There was a strong Russian influence at St. Elias Monastery when Russian officials offered donations to the school and certain Russian diplomats and pilgrims would visit the monastery too. In 1910, when Patriarch Gregory V returned from Russia, simple and pious Russian monks came to the monastery, offering additions and alterations, yet were forced to leave at the onset of the First World War. Patriarch Gregory built a road connecting St. Elias Monastery to the highway, and in 1906 he advised the superior to build houses for sharecroppers in the local region, himself planting 12,000 mulberry trees on the monastery's land. The monastery and its schools continued to function throughout the 20th century. Though the monastery was damaged during the Lebanese Civil War, the Superior began careful repairs which were finally completed in 1996. Today, the monastery serves as the summer residence of the Patriarchate, with meetings of the Holy Antiochian Synod occurring there frequently. The current abbot of the monastery is His Eminence Bishop Constantine of Zabadani. St Elias Monastery offers opportunities for pilgrims to visit and venerate there especially on the eve of St. Elias's Day on the 20th of July, where people from a variety of backgrounds celebrate the Holy Prophet's feast. While still young, Hieromonk Isaac Atullah, the disciple of St. Paisios, yearned for the monastic life, and it was to the St. Elias Monastery in Shwaya that he first journeyed to seek the monastic life before his family searched for him and bade him return home. The monastery has contributed greatly to the Orthodox community. The monastic community, the 63 manuscripts it contains, provides spiritual guidance to the brethren, among them sermons of St. John Chrysostom and St. John Climacus's Ladder of Divine Ascent. St. Elias Monastery provides a faithful with numerous icons to venerate. The oldest icon dates to the 10th or 11th century, and it is the icon of the holy prophet Elias which depicts him traditionally beside the cave, being fed by the raven sent by God. Amongst other icons is one that depicts several scenes from the holy prophet's life, such as when the prophet ascended to heaven in a chariot of fire. Furthermore, the iconostasis of the monastery's church contains three icons placed there in 1761 by the Bishop of Tripoli, Bathenios, after the church was restored. The icons are of Christ depicted as a bishop, the mother of God portrayed as queen of heaven, holding the Christ child, and again the prophet Elias slaying the false priests of Baal. These icons have Arabic inscriptions, warm ambiences, gilded costumes, almond eyes and brown faces, which reflects the Syrian Christian atmosphere of that time. Thus, these icons reveal the treasures of Middle Eastern spiritual history. There are also icons which seem to originate from Russia, brought by the Russian monks when they arrived in 1910. They represent St. George slaying the dragon, St. John the Baptist, and St. Spiridon. Unlike the Syrian-styled icons, the figures have pale faces. Overall, St. Elias Monastery is a treasure and oasis for Orthodox Christians in the Middle East. Its heritage, icons, and spiritual possessions strengthen the Lebanese Orthodox culture, and the humble prayers of its monks protects the faithful as a spiritual fortress.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Divine Lantern. We hope you enjoyed it and took lots of great things away. Before we conclude this week's episode, we would like to share a special announcement from our Archdiocese. On February 25th, we will be celebrating the 10-year anniversary of St. Raphael's Antiochian Orthodox Mission with a great Vespers service and refreshments. The service will be presided over by His Eminence Metropolitan Basilios at St. Nicholas Antiochian Orthodox Church, 11 Henry Street, Punchbowl, at 7pm. Registrations are essential via strafaelsgreatvespers2022.flokt.com. As always, catch you next week.